Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> um, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where I would invite you to turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in just a moment, we're going to read from God's Word, and we're going to pray for God's help. All right, let's hear the Word of God. Um, Chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's servant. We, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about mere human leaders All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Amen. That's a lot. Let's, this is part two. We worked through about the first nine verses last week and we'll move forward beginning in verse 10 now. So let's pray. Just a, a quick line. From him, well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them all, and a thousand more, but Jehovah knows not one. Father, my heart is so wretched. Thank you that that does not stop you, that you don't wait outside until I am better, 
but you have, in Christ, you have come in. So in that, please bless us with your presence. Break open your grace, your almighty power, and let it come down on us, your church. We are thirsty, God. Please give us the living water, Jesus Christ, as your word is preached. Amen. I heard this um, out loud. I think it was a father to a son, son 10, 11, 12. The dad said, who do you think you are? Right? And he said it that way. So, you know, you could say, you could say it, who do you think you are? You could say it in that kind of high-minded, who do you think you are? But regardless, that phrase said in that way is probably used in every context, every day, somewhere. At, at its root, whenever we say, who do you think you are? It is a question of authority, of what gives a particular person the right to say what they're saying and the right to do what they are doing. Just for example, at work, employee to employer, employer to employees, schools, students to teacher, teachers to student, in a marriage, in families, in society, and in religion, right? Indeed, as in the case of this letter, in the church. Who, who do you think you are? At its root is a question of authority. It's, it's a classic line that is spoken, questioning the right, the authority of the person they are addressing to say what they're saying and to do what they are doing. So this is back in 1958. J.I. Packer, he wrote the book Fundamentalism, and there was a chapter on authority. And at that time in Packer's day, uh, there was an attack on the authority of the Scripture in the church, and so Packer writes, the problem of authority is the most fundamental problem that the Christian church ever faces. This is because Christianity is built on truth. That is to say, on the content of divine revelation, modern man, skeptical and indifferent as he is to dogmatic pronouncements about the supernatural order, may find it hard to take seriously the idea that one's own eternal welfare may depend on what one believes. But the apostles were sure that it was so. Theological error was to them a grim reality, as with the spiritual shipwreck which comes in its wake. He goes on, we must expect to find error constantly assailing the truth. Christianity will always be a theological battlefield, but in that case, the Christian's most pressing need in every age is to have a reliable principle by which they may test the conflicting voices that claim to speak for Christianity and so make out amid their discordant clamor what he ought to believe and do. In that, the deepest doctrinal cleavages are those which result from a disagreement about authority. You understand what he's saying? So the biggest arguments at its root is a question of authority. Who, you know, who do you think you are? Those who disagree as to the principle of authority can reach no significant agreement on anything. And the principle of the authority, the Bible says, is itself and it does not need to be supplemented and interrupted by tradition or revised in correction by reason. Indeed, it demands to sit in judgment on the dictates of both. The words of men and women must be tried by the word of God. 
Indeed, our Lord in life and death devoted himself to fulfilling the scriptures. Okay, that's J.I. Packard. I love him. There's a gentleman, Dustin Binge, from the 20th century. When we shift our perspective from our own puny self-interest, which often fuels our disgruntlement towards the church, when we shift our perspective from that to God's revealed will for the church and his word, then she will not only become precious to us, but a treasure of eternal joy, beauty, and love. One more of pastor's conferences I was at four years ago. I apologize. I cannot remember the name, the person who said this, but this is what I had in my notes. If we don't have a clear picture of what the church is to be theologically, then it's hard to know what is right or wrong. If not, then the loudest voice, the strongest personality, or the latest trend will be our source or the congregation's source. And even in that, we might say, this is what we've always done. So let's just keep doing it that way. Now, we need to think. Since the beginning, in Adam, we find it very, very hard for people to have authority over them. We find it hard to submit to authority, to, to yield to the ask of authority. As a result, we get that question in a million different ways. Who do you think you are? Right? What gives you the right to say what you're saying? And, and what gives you the right to do what you were doing? In fact, what gives you the right to say what you were saying, in a sense, over me, authoritatively? Again, who do you think you are? And if you think about it, it happened in the ministry of Jesus all the time. Indeed, just about every question the scribes and the Pharisees and, and, the, high, and the, the chief priests asked Jesus, it was always rooted in his authority. So Jesus would preach something, he would, he would do something, teach something, and immediately they would ask, by what authority are you doing these things? And in fact, what were they saying? Who do you think you are? Okay, here's an example. <clears throat> when Jesus drove out the money changers, Right? He's flipping the tables, and then he taught the kingdom of God. The teachers of the law and the elders come in. They see all that. Mark eleven twenty seven. By what authority are you doing these things? You know, who gives you the right to do these things? Another example, Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic before he heals them. Mark 2, 6. And some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves... Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In essence, what were they saying? Who do you think you are? Who does he think he is? He doesn't have that kind of authority to forgive sins. And again, the, the religious might of that day who understood themselves as the authority couldn't stand to have Jesus, if you would, over them in what he was saying and preaching and doing. Now, if you want to just get more like rudimentary, in October 1983, John Mellencamp, remember the song, the authority song? I fight authority, authority always wins. But remember the line that he says before that? Oh, no, 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 right? You can, there's a lot of angst in that song. Frustrated because we have authority over us. So we know we like to give orders. I mean, that's an easy one. But it's hard for humans to take orders, and in society, I mean, at least right now, we tend to have a love-hate relationship with people in authority. Sometimes we love them, and sometimes we're like, <clears throat> all right. So I was, I was thinking very deeply, and I had this deep thought. 
So those of you that are Marvel fans, remember that scene in Marvel's The Avengers, the Marvel The Avengers, the first one. It's during the battle for New York, Captain America and all his glory. He's fighting the Shatari aliens, and he's just, you know, he's dominating. And there's one scene where Captain America jumps on the top of a police car, and there's the police force there, and he looks at them, he's sealed in hand, and he points to them, he says, I need your men in these buildings. There's people inside, and they're going to be running into the line of fire. You take them to the basement or the subway, you keep them off the streets. I need a perimeter as far back as 39th Street. And so there's the police there, and there's the captain, and he looks at Captain America, and he says, why in the dickens, and he uses another word, why in the dickens should I take orders from you? And then remember what happens? Here comes about six aliens, and Captain America goes wham, bam, bam, you know, beats them all up. The officer is impressed, and what does he do? He gets on his radio. I need men in those buildings leading people down away from the streets. We need to set up a perimeter way down to 39th Street. You get the... Now, this question of authority is fundamental to the text. Last time we said, and we said it pretty clearly, but we're going to say it again, that Paul was writing to God's church in Corinth, okay? They were in a difficult situation by their own eras. But it was still God's church. That's our first point, God's church. So they were God's people. The church belonged to God, not them. And that's true of every church. It's especially true of this one. How do you know that? You know, who gives you the right to say that? Well, look at your Bible. The church is described as the family of God, the household of God, the flock of God, the church of God, the bride of Christ. All biblical names given the church. And the truth hasn't changed. In Christ, for them and in us, thank God, it will never change. So even if a person has served the church for 50 years, they've still done less than what Jesus Christ has done for the church. He is the one person who's more committed to this church, to the church, than we are. And he's therefore the one we turn to and trust in and listen to. With our great problems, we turn to our great God for great grace. Why do we do that? Because Jesus Christ has a long history of building his church. Loved ones, Ephesians 1.22 teaches us that Jesus governs the entire cosmos, the whole universe and beyond with a view to the well-being of his church. And so what Christ has done for the Corinthian Christians by his suffering and death on the cross It wasn't akin to some like regional deity doing some kind of good luck work and and, and good luck charm and goodwill towards a pocket of people. What Christ accomplished at the cross, and the church there needed to understand that, what he accomplished means that nothing will ever be the same for anyone ever again. And so the church is God's church, but the church had difficulty which is true to the form, is true to form, excuse me, of every church that it has ever been. I mean, I was reading through Acts this week, okay? Now, I want you to think with me. The church in Jerusalem, spectacular, firepower of apostles there. But right out of the gate, what do we find? They had thievery, they had dishonesty, there was greed, and we're not even out of chapter 6. I mean, just, can we put it in the context If that was going on, what would people say? Who's your pastor? I mean, who's your pastor? All that stuff going on. What are you learning? And who's your pastor? Well, the church is God's church, but that church has difficulties. The difficulty there, as you can see this, your Bible's open, please, in the beginning verses, is disunity. 
Why is there disunity? Well, because there's immaturity. Okay, why is there immaturity? Well, here's the argument. <clears throat> because they think they're the authority in the church. And not just in some things, but if you read through the whole letter, it's just about everything. In fact, you could easily say this, and this is important, that in the Corinthian church, what they would call spirituality, Paul would call either mere human wisdom or the wisdom of this world, and therefore he would call that immaturity. All right, so just have this in your mind. Disunity in that church because of their immaturity, and their immaturity is rooted in the fact that they think they're the highest authority. And therefore, because the church is God's church, and God is the highest authority, and God loves the church, Paul is sent, Paul writes this letter with, with a kind of, if you would, in chapter 2, a kind of preemptive strike. In essence, they were going to ask, who do you think you are, Paul? You're writing this stuff? Who do you think we are? By what authority, who do you think you are? By what authority, Paul, are you saying and telling us these things? Why should we listen to you? That's the first point, God's church. The second point, God's truth. So if your Bible's open to chapter 2, can you see it there? I'm actually going to read a a few verses from it. Actually, quite a few verses because it's going to help us. Verse 2, do you see it there? Paul says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would have crucified, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the, thing, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may never, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by this. Not, but I'm, I apologize. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So if you were listening to that, you can see there was a heavy, heavy emphasis on the Spirit, and there was a lot of we and us words being thrown around. In fact, the Spirit is mentioned at least nine or ten times, directly or indirectly. And the focus here, as you can see, is, is what his role is. Specifically, the Spirit's 
teaching role, his authoritative teaching role. In other words, what the Spirit says and who the Spirit is saying it through. And so the connection should be easy. The Holy Scriptures comes from the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures uh, are supposed to have something to do with each other. And the Holy Scriptures are the byproduct of who? The Holy Spirit. Your Bible, 2 Peter 1.21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul does here, right? Because on one level, the Corinthian church would love to talk about the Spirit. They had a zeal for the Spirit, but their zeal was without knowledge. And that was dangerous, What they did, and listen carefully, please, they allowed for no constraints of what they would say, what they would hear or feel or say, if you would, that they were directed by the Spirit. And what Paul does here, he provides those restraints clearly. So I want you to follow this line of thought. If if your eyes on your Bible, please. In verse 2, do you see what Paul says? My message was Christ in him crucified. Okay, verse 3, that message, even though I was weak and trembling, came with you, verse 4, came to you with spiritual power, the Spirit's power. Why? You see it there? So that every eye would be on Christ, if you would. Remember James Denny, 19th century theologian, he said, no man can give the impression that he himself was clever and that Christ is mighty to save. That's what Paul says in verse 5, so that your faith would rest on God's power, on what God had done in Christ and not on human wisdom and definitely not human personality. And this means, and this is incredibly important, it's foundational. Whatever Paul would say, beginning in verse 6 and following, now again to your Bibles, about a message of wisdom among the mature, that's verse 6, and then declaring God's wisdom, verse 7, and that mystery, verse 8, that has been made known, which none of the rulers, the best and brightest of, the, of this age, understood. All of that is tied to the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? In other words, God's wisdom, the message of wisdom, a message that the natural man, even the wisest among us, cannot understand. The message that Paul preached that the apostles taught, and in fact, if you look in your Bibles, Acts 2.42, the pillar of the church, the, the teaching pillar of the church is the message of Christ and him crucified. Okay? And this is what this means. It means the wisdom of God is not something additional to the saving message of Christ and him crucified or something just as important or just as foundational. No, the message of wisdom among the mature is Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul is saying is there's nothing beyond Christ and him crucified. There's no teaching, there's no Christian teaching that is not tied to Christ and him crucified. Maturity is tied to this and all the implications of that. Now you need to think with me, what was the problem in Corinth? They always wanted something more past Christ and him crucified. They, they, wanted, they wanted it, and some of the implications were clear. And so Paul says to them, no, authoritatively, this is what I preach. This is the wisdom of God. This is the message of God. This is our foundation. Everything I say and everything I do is tied to Christ and him crucified. Verse 11, right, you know, who do you think you are, Joe? How can you say that? Verse 11, do you see it there? 
For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, do you understand how difficult that actually is in its application? Forgive me, little Jimmy is so bad. And I heard there was a church that said five steps, you know, to make little Jimmy the best boy in the neighborhood. Right? I want to go where my kids are like, oh, oh. <laughs> tell me, tell me the five steps to get Jimmy from bad to good. But you see it in the text. Even with that churches, the Corinthian churches, that thirst for spiritual experience and the thirst for spiritual power. What are they called? Do you see it there in the opening verses of chapter 3? Babies, mere humans, and not mature. Why? Because their jealousy and quarreling were empty of the wisdom of the cross. At the cross, the ground is level. They somehow forgot that. Their jealousy and quarreling were empty of the cross's wisdom, empty of the equality that the cross brings into the church. So they would make judgments on, you know, are you a Paul guy or are you an Apollos guy? What are you? Which one are you there? And Paul would say in chapter 4, verse 7, do you see it there? No matter how high their attainments, whatever we achieved, we received from God. So here's the deal. They say, who does Paul think he is? Look at Paul's answer, chapter 2, verse 6. So do you see the word we? We do speak a message of wisdom, verse 7. The word we, we declare God's wisdom. And there again in verse 10, the word, he uses the word us. The big question is who's the we and who's the us in this context? Well, in the context, I can tell you with absolute certainty, it does not refer to every Christian person because none, none of us here are recipients of direct divine revelation like Paul and the apostles were, meaning they are the we and not you and I or any other Christian because you have to just run those things through. If that was the case, if every Christian was recipients of direct divine revelation outside the word of God as we have it, then one of the byproducts would be what? That we would need a whole lot more Bibles We'd have the second Bible and the third Bible and the fourth Bible. In essence, we'd have a lot more new canons in addition to the canon that we have. Because there'd be all this new authority. Who do you think you are? Well, I heard this from... And if you think about that, that means that not everyone would have access to these new words from God. Is that not disappointing to you? When people have access to the word of God now, you probably know this, Gnosticism in the second, third, and fourth century, it plagued the church. It still does. Secret knowledge was given to only the special initiated Christians when everything about Christianity and the gospel was public. It's a public story with a public message and everything we know, everything we know John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, Jesus said, because the servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And you could say, and they, the disciples to us in the New Testament. 
But let's just be even more certain. You see the word us in verse 10? These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. In the Greek, it's written in the emphatic. Forgive me. The reason why I tell you this, it's a point of emphasis. So what Paul is doing here in this context, he's emphasizing the authority, the apostolic authority and ministry to the church in Corinth. And what he's saying is, if you ask the question to me, Paul, who, who, do you think, uh, you know, who do you think you are saying the things that you're saying? What gives you the right? This is what he would say. Chapter 1, verse 1, I'm an apostle of Christ sent here by the will of God. When I speak as an apostle and I teach as an apostle, I speak authoritatively. I speak in finality. Chapter 2, verse 10, I've been given authoritative truth for the church. By God's Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 10. I'm giving it to you by the grace given to me. And it has to be grace because I was Paul and I was a wreck until grace changed me. Nevertheless, by God's grace, chapter 3, verse 16. You see it there? We, we, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter, th- chapter 2, verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. That's the context there. Paul is saying, we apostles have the mind of Christ. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 6, don't go beyond what is written. In other words, Paul is saying, stay on the line. Because if you, Corinthians, do what you're doing now, you go beyond the line, then this is what you can expect. Immaturity, disunity, immorality, chapters 5 and 6 there, even, if you read on in the letter in chapters 10 and 11, even potentially blaspheming the work of Christ on the cross in your communion celebrations. And that will mark you. So Paul says, when I speak, in that sense, I speak for God. And only an apostle can say that. Okay? Just stay with me. God is the author of the revelation. This is what we speak, not words, chapter 13, or verse 13, not of words of human origin. What is the message? Christ and him crucified, that's foundational. The spirit is the agent which brings it, that's all of chapter 2. And the apostles are the recipients. And therein, when we have this authoritative letter, we have the mind of God for the church in Corinth, but for every church for all ages. Now, if you think about it, we have the same type of thing, and you can look this up later. 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, Paul says, whether it was I, Paul, or they, the other apostles, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. He's talking about the gospel. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, the, the, the mystery of Christ, the incorporation of Jews and Gentiles into the body as one equal, now has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And then they preach that message. You get it revealed to the apostles and prophets, and then they preach that message. And what is the message? Well, chapter 2, verse 20 of Ephesians, Jesus Christ, cornerstone of the church. So if you're taking notes, I would write down, God is the author of the revelation. Christ is the message of the revelation. Christ and him crucified. The spirit is the agent, and the apostles are the recipients. And therein lies their authority over the churches. And what we have then is authoritative words over this church. So again, if they said to him, who do you think you are, Paul? He would say, I am an apostle. 
So that when I sing, say things to you, chapter 3, verse 9, do you see it there? You are God's building, and that's our final point. When I say you are God's building, I'm not pulling that out of the air. I'm not even pulling it out of my mind. No, this is divine authority. It is not human wisdom. It's not some church growth plan. It is divine authority from God through the Spirit to me, Paul, and now I am giving it to you. Which takes us to our final point. You, you are God's building. You see it there in verse 9. Agricultural was last week. That was the metaphor. This one is building. You are God's building. All right? So here's what we need to know. Whether we're cultivating a field or constructing a building, we're a team of farmers. We're a team of builders. We work together. We don't labor on our own. We're serving our common king. We're pursuing his goals, his goals, because the church is his. Now, let's just try to understand that. First, the church is not sticks and bricks. We understand that, right? The church is flesh and blood. The church of Jesus Christ is technically not some physical structure that will just, you know, fall away in time. We thank God that we have a place to meet. But the place is not the church. It's just a place. And so when you become a Christian, believing means you belong. And conversion brings you to God, and it brings you to God's people. That's the first thing. The second thing, do you see there verse 10? The designer of the church is God. God is the designer of the church, his building. So what God has planned for all eternity, he set his eye on the church, and he loves the church. And before time and in time, there was the plan. And by God's providence, he's working out, Ephesians 1.11, everything according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory in the church. So it's an undeserved privilege to be a Christian. It's an undeserved privilege to be made members of his body. And it's an undeserved privilege to be called to serve. But that's what we know. So we are God's building. God is the designer of the building, the church. And that is the implication of what he said in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation. Okay? By the keros. This gift from God given to Paul. The gift of apostleship. So the grace of God is infused, if you would, in Paul. God's power, God's intention, God's design, God's plan for the church through Paul, and Paul puts it, if you would, on paper. And that's what he's able to say. By the grace given me, I laid the foundation. Okay, someone else is building on it. And then look at verse 10b. But each one should be careful how they build. Do you see the word careful? In the Greek, it's the word blipo. It's a funny word. But what it means, it literally means to look, to be watchful, to, to see. Okay, so you say, look at what? See what? Well, the idea in the, in the context is simply this. If you're going to build something, you don't look at yourself, do you? What do you look at? The plans. The plans. You're going to look, if you would, at the blueprints. And that's what Paul is driving home. He says, listen to me, as an apostle, he's going to teach us what we need to know about God, about God's church, and about God's building, and how we should build. Now, if you think about it, there was a pattern like this in the Old Testament. Remember, Moses was given the exact plans 
in the building of the tabernacle. Do you remember that? And so God told Moses, and then Moses told the people, this is how I'm to be worshiped as God, and this this is how I'm to be praised, and this is the tabernacle that I want you to build, and there's going to be various rooms, and they're going to function in different ways. They're going to be so long and so wide, and et cetera, et cetera, and go into all the world and say and do exactly this. That happened to Moses, and that's what's happening here through the apostle. The apostles are the earthly representative of Jesus Christ, and they establish the God-given pattern for the church. Now, if you're still listening and you're active, the 21st century mind just recoils and resists that kind of exactness and that kind of instruction with that kind of authority. I mean, we, we might say, who do you think we are? We need freedom and we need this. And you might even hear this. We know what is best for our church. Let me say this to you. If I ever hear that, if I ever say that, that would scare the dickens out of me. We know what is best for our church. You would say to yourself, who is the father and who's the child? Who's the authority and who is the servant? God is the designer of the church he's building. Verse 11, and guess what? Jesus is the foundation of the church that God is building. And loved ones, we, we dare not have any uncertainty about this. In verse 10, when Paul said he was the expert builder, literally it means I was the first builder. I was the master builder. And what did the master builder build? Verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which Paul laid, which is Jesus Christ. And this, this Jesus, bear with me, this Jesus is not the Jesus of our imagination. This is the Jesus of the apostolic witness, the Jesus of the Bible, if you would. Jesus and him crucified. And again, Paul used that word Carefully there in verse 10, because he understands that it's possible to construct a community of people on a different basis. So whether it's a different Jesus or a different message, you're going to get a different foundation. And there's all the potential in the world for a community like this, a quote, church to exist, but it will not be a church that belongs to God because it's possible, quote, to build a church but a church built on just self-created moral standards, a type of moral minority church, which the only thing that we hitch our wagons to is not Christ and him crucified, but what do we believe right now about what's going on in America, in Zimbabwe, wherever? Or, you know, we don't like these certain groups of people. We don't like Hollywood. We don't like the rich. We don't like a certain political group. And so we all come together on the basis of that. That is not church. That is not, the ch- that is not the foundation. Or we could even be a church simply of social movements. Or we could be, you know, we're the end times church. You know, we have it all plotted out. Come on over and we'll let you have it. Or, and this is a dangerous one, we could, we could only be, you know, the in-house relationship church. Just in-house relationships. Let's just love each other to death. Or as in the case of the Corinthian church, we have the Holy Spirit church. You want some juice? Come down here. God is the designer. Jesus, the foundation. Final point here. So construction crew, be careful. 
Okay, why do you see it there in verses 12 and following? You're going to build using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Okay, what's your material? Because on that last day, not today, but the last day, the day, the one who judges all things well will judge, and he'll judge with fire. Just follow the line of the text. And the fire is going to test the quality of each person's work. So there's only two possibilities. You can build with gold, silver, costly stones, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or you could do hay and stubble and wood, cheap, perishable materials. But on that day, verse 13, God will bring it to light. Two possible materials to build with, two possible outcomes. You see it there, verses 13 and 14? Once the test comes at the end, rewards will be received If you built with wood, hay, and straw, it will be consumed by the fires of God's judgment. Okay, you're going to suffer loss. What you built will be seen on the day as absolutely worthless. Application, a church could be going around great for 50 years, seemingly. Right? We feel like we're doing great. We look, we're great. But then the test comes. And the test is God's test. It's not crowds, although crowds are important. It's Christ and him crucified. Did you build on that foundation? So we may have thought, you know, look at us go. We are so churchy. But then the fire comes on the last day. Christ is not the foundation of the church. What they have built, as nice as it may look, will not survive. I say to myself, what a waste of years. What a waste of years. However, verse 15, they're still going to be saved, thank God. Right? Save, if you would, by the skin of their teeth. So the rewards will be lost, but their salvation will not be. This is the truth. I try to remind myself every week that what I teach and what I preach to this church will bless or harm this church, not only for time, but for all of eternity. Verse 15 of chapter 3 tells me that. Now, now we need to end. Some just quick, quick applications, and we're, we're done, okay? Um, again, if someone would say that we know what is best for our church, that should give you chills. That should make your leader stand up and say, no, you don't. This is God's church, and God knows best. When we make church decisions in all the different realms and all the different ministries and committees, our biggest Christian has to be by principle, by foundation. What do the scriptures teach to solidify that decision? It wasn't so long ago I was in a circumstance where a group of people made a choice and I asked them, I said, I said, what scripture did you use? And no one could give me one, not one to make this massive decision. And, and if you're looking for some kind of, you know, static spiritual experience, just remember the Corinthian church. They, they had them. It was their meat and drink. But look how troublesome that was for the church. Look how ineffective. Look how immature. Indeed, how cruel they were even to an apostle. And so remember, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the foundation of every true church. 
which means that everything that church does and everything that church teaches is always related in some way to the gospel of Christ, some way to the cross, some way to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if it's not, then it's not on a, built on a foundation that will last. Three more things. I think one of the greatest hindrances in any church is not a lack of effort but a lack of awareness and boldness of the promises and the privileges that we have in Christ. Your Bible, verses 21 and 22, do you see it there? That's why Paul says what he says near the end of his argument. All things are yours already in Christ, and Christ is of God, right? All things are yours already. There's a hymn that I like. It has the line, we are building day by day as the moments pass away a temple that this world cannot see. And every victory won by grace will be sure to find a place in that building for eternity. My final thought is this. When we ask that question, who do, we, who do you think you are? In the context of what we've just talked about, the New Testament, since the time of the apostle and Christ, the New Testament has been hammered out on the anvil, if you would, of, of, of dialogue and debate, and it has stood the test of time. There is no current spiritual experience that anyone has ever had currently. There's no current word that anyone has ever had that they can see that about. And you have to be mindful of that. You have to be mindful of that. Thank, thanks for your attention. We get to eat pizza now. <laughs> Let, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we just have this great awareness <clears throat> of how great and fundamentally beautiful your mercy seat is. And the grace that you've given, you've given us is, is super abundant and we want to thank you for us for it. Help us not to worry about the future. Help us not to seek self-chosen works after our own thoughts, but continue in your word as your children. Help us to remember that weakness is not a hindrance but opportunity for you to work in unexpectedly wonderful ways. And help us to remember that Christ and him crucified is the message of maturity, the message from heaven, the wisdom of God, and the foundation of this and every true church. Now bless us as we eat. Bless the food that we eat. Help us to enjoy our company conversation to the praise of your glory we ask these things amen amen god bless you thank you for listening this week if you were helped or encouraged by this sermon please share it with others for additional information visit us online at westquestchapel.com there you'll find other resources to connect you to christ in his church also we invite you to follow us on facebook instagram or our youtube channel 
We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.